Drayden Squids. Welcome to the Watchmen Podcast, the inaugural episode of our Watchmen Recap and Review Podcast. I'm James, with me is Ryan. Hi, I'm Ryan. And we are the HBO Boys. Formerly, we are the Westworld Podcast, if you don't know us. And we've also recapped and reviewed Game of Thrones. And so we're here for all the flagship HBO shows. And right now, Watchmen is the thing. Yeah, we're the local hashtag HBO Boys whom are bandwagon jumpers, and we have chosen this 9 p.m. on HBO Bandwagon. Yeah, but this clout chasing is slightly more legitimate than Westworld, which we were basically coming in dry. Ryan is a big Lindelof fan, and I am a huge Alan Moore Watchmen fan, so this, this is a good choice for us. I would It's a great choice for us. I would clarify to say that I am a big Leftovers fan, Lost, I'm iffy on if anyone else watched Lost and got to the end and was just like, hey, what the heck? I was also one of those people. But the leftovers, in the other hand, I was did not feel that way at all. So I, I like the man. I like the things he has made. And yeah, James is obsessed with Watchmen, and I am not. Those will That will color the perspective of this entire podcast. Yeah, Ryan has only seen the Zack Snyder film. He hasn't read the comic. Sorry, let me restate that. He hasn't read the comic, alright? Okay, wow. One, don't know why you used that voice. Not very nice. Two, yeah, I'm a pleb, so let's all move on with our lives. So this first episode has the title, It's Summer and We're Running Out of Ice, which is a line from the musical Oklahoma, which features prominently in this episode. It does, although it is a slightly different version. We'll, we'll get into it. It's directed by Nicole Castle, who, not too prolific director, she's directed the TV show The Woodsman and Vinyl, which are... The Woodsman is not a TV show. It is a movie where Kevin Bacon plays a child molester, and it's an odd one. She's also directed... She's directed a bunch of TV shows, Better Call Saul, The Americans, Season 2, Episode 7 of Westworld, and the Matt episode of The Leftovers. Oh, look at that. And it written by showrunner Damon Lindelof, who already we mentioned, of Lost and Leftovers fame. And as you mentioned, uh, you didn't, you know, iffy on Lost. I did not care for Lost. And I've never seen an episode of The Leftovers. I'm only vaguely sure of what it's about. What is it about the rapture or something? It's about a version of the rapture, yes. And everyone should watch The Leftovers, by the way. It's amazing. But he, he also, nice little connection here co-wrote Cowboys and Aliens, where we get our theme music from. <laughs> I, th- some people, everyone should go after this episode, listen to our recap and review of Cowboys and Aliens, and not watch, the- if you haven't watched the movie, don't waste your two hours. Uh, he co-wrote Prometheus, another movie I like. He co-wrote Star Trek Into Darkness, which is probably the, s- probably the, the second best of the Star Trek reboot movies. None of them are that good. But he's a good writer. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with his work. I like him. Is that the one with Benny Cumbiebatch? That is indeed. Okay. I like all of those movies. I can turn my brain off and just be psyched. I'm a, I was a Star Trek kid. I don't know how many kids were really into Star Trek, but I was one of them. And yes, as you previously mentioned, he was a part of the Lost executive crew. Lost being like one of those shows that pretty much started the golden age of television in the recent 10 to 15 years and it was really really good i mean like people were talking mash level good 
And then it got to the end and became incredibly divisive to which he responded to that criticism with he made the leftovers next and he basically wrote it backwards so that could not happen again and i hope he does the same thing with watchmen because if we get to the end of watchmen and they're all in purgatory i'm gonna lose my shit yeah there is a problem with this era of prestige television and diminishing returns and bad endings we're getting a lot of that lately certainly that was the case with game of thrones the last big it show although i will say When I binged Game of Thrones as I was watching the sixth season, it was better than just waiting a year or waiting weeks. So, yeah, the end was iffy, but they're bingeable shows, and binging them makes it the viewing experience different. And I wonder how the binge experience of Watchmen will be already. We're only on season one, episode one. And, but, and we were on this track of waiting weeks and then waiting years in between seasons. But I also am like looking forward to my weird future three to four years from now where I can just watch them straight through and see their vibe. So the episode opens with a black and white silent serial being watched in a almost completely empty movie theater by a single child. As his mother plays the soundtrack on the piano, the the serial is um, Bass Reeves, the Black Marshal of Oklahoma. The mother is crying. We don't know why, you know, until an explosion occurs. My doomsday clock has gone from six to midnight, and the black lady goes and picks up her child as the dad walks in, hands her a gun, and they walk outside into Tulsa 1921 into a fun fact, well... Not so fun fact. This was an actual riot. Yeah, I did not know this until watching this episode. This is taking place in 1921 in Tulsa, the Black Wall Street Massacre, where roving bands of like KKK members and crazy white racists just attacked all the black residents and business owners in the Greenwood District of Tulsa. And it's a harrowing scene. Really like, like quickly paced and... Like, I think it's mostly one cut and, like, very jarring way to start the show, really catch your attention, and just really dramatic and kind of scary. As I was watching it, I was like, oh, man, here's the alternate history of this world. Yes, yes, me too. I was like, oh, okay. And then I found out it was real. I was like, oh, that is disappointing. But it just kind of underscores that one of the main themes of this show, at least of this episode, and I think going forward, is race and race tension. And we're certainly experiencing that throughout the history of the United States. And it's probably getting a little bit worse the past couple of years. Yeah. I mean, a, a, a worry about this show was that it was not going to tackle race relations. It was not going to tackle the big, meaty topics that might get them into trouble hey, everything's fine, they're definitely going to do that. So the little boy's name is OB. His parents are able to slip through the chaos and get him on a getaway car, but they're left behind, and he's hidden inside of a box. An explosion goes off next to the car, and he's knocked out. He watches out the back of his box that has been riddled with bullets recently as the building that he has just left and his dad and mom are still in totes explodes. He wakes up at night in a field. The car's been crashed and overturned, and he finds a baby just also lying among the wreckage. 
He wraps it in the American flag, walks off into the darkness, and we get, I really like this, the smash text title, It's Summer and We're Running Out of Ice. Babies having babies, James. A song that particularly slaps Come On. Yeah, a real banger. Which I believe is one of the only songs not written by Atticus Ross and Trent Reznor who are writing the score. They've written the scores of many of my favorite movies. Also, you know, Nine Inch Nails. They couldn't get the Game of Thrones Westworld guy because I guess he's probably making the soundtrack for a hundred other shows right now. So hard cut to the present day on a lonely stretch of highway at night. A nameless white dude is driving a pickup truck and is shocked when he's suddenly pulled over by a police officer. We are September 8th, 2019. We are still in Oklahoma as the police officer comes up to the car and or truck that is running on battery power. And it's a truck that you would not usually see being a a battery run vehicle in our day and age. So it is probably safe to say that fossil fuels aren't a thing. And if fossil fuels aren't a thing, I only have one question. Ozymandias, what have you done? Well, actually, again, read your comic book. Uh, no. <laughs> since... Dr. Manhattan had complete mastery over all things molecular and atomic. He was able to just instantly synthesize the rare and valuable lithium that is used in all kinds of rechargeable batteries. And he made fossil fuel cars obsolete and everything runs on electricity. But I think that's going to be a plot point in this show is that without Dr. Manhattan, that limitless supply of lithium no longer exists. And maybe it's becoming a rare and precious commodity. Okay, well, two things. Number one, if you keep doing that voice... I will go to the airport, get on an airplane, go to... You're in Korea currently, correct? Mm-hmm. 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 I will go to Korea, and I will punch you in the nostril. Number two. That's pretty cool. I didn't know that. The officer pulls him over, and the first thing he says is, this interaction's being recorded. Do you consent to that? And the guy says yes. So uh, clearly in this universe, police have a lot higher degree of accountability than they do in our reality. Yeah, they have guns that need to be buzzed, which I think is going to be one of the largest talking points of the show. Yeah, so he asks for the guy's license and registration. When he goes to see it, he notices this, like, dirty black and white rag in the glove box, which instantly sets off alarm bells in the cop's mind. The cop is wearing a yellow bandana over his face that only his eyes are visible, and the the driver remarks on that. He's like, can I see your license? He's the driver replies, can I see your face? To which the policeman is like, hey, how dare you? I don't appreciate the words that you're currently saying. And he goes back to his police vehicle to try to call in and get the ability to unbuzz his gun. His gun is sheathed in a what looks like a like a yellow sleeve and he has to be buzzed from somewhere else someone needs to give him the ability to take it out he is trying to make his case to the person that he called and say that the risk is high of both drugs violence and 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 by the way he has a Rorschach mask so that's that pretty much straight up tells him that something not great is about to happen, so he wants his gun. Although, when he calls in, he seems to get the one guy he doesn't want to talk to about buzzing his gun out. Yeah, this guy named Panda, who seems really hesitant, and yeah, he gives him the runaround. 
he asks him all these qualifying state questions like, oh, do you, do you feel like you're under threat? Do you feel like there's a potential for violence? And he does finally buzz it, but doesn't come out right away. He buzzes it a second, a third, a fourth time the gun finally comes out and a sigh of relief. And then immediately he's just riddled with bullets by the driver of the car, stepped out, donned his Rorschach mask and just shot him several times with a silenced automatic weapon. And from this moment, I assumed there was no way this guy would be alive. No, I thought he was just, I thought he was dead in this shot. Yeah, absolutely. And I asked myself, was it the gun buzzing malfunction that killed him or Panda? And previously he had asked the driver, you know, what are you hauling in the pickup truck? And he had replied, lettuce. And then actually the the assailant does reach into the truck, grab a head of lettuce and throw it at the police officer through the broken windshield. Basically saying, hey, I wasn't trying to stop you from doing anything specific with me and my lettuce. I'm just a homicidal maniac. Yeah, I just don't like you. Cut to a theater where there's an all black production of the musical Oklahoma in progress. A masked officer silently approaches an older man and whispers something in his ear. The older man stands and is escorted through a hall of masked policemen. This is Tulsa Police Chief Judd, and he is now just being informed that there's been an attack on an officer. And he is not just Judd, James. This man is Don Johnson, Big Daddy from Django Unchained, more specifically Detective James Crockett from Miami Vice. He's sunny on Miami Vice, not a show I'm that familiar with. Oh, Miami Vice, do you want to be a detective? Do you want to wear cool Technicolor coats while looking awesome and fighting crime in Miami in the 80s? Miami Vice. He meets with a detective, Wade, who has this cool silver featureless mask. Wade, the detectives in the police, the police wear these kind of samey yellow bandanas, but the detectives and higher up officers have like full-on hero outfits and names. And so this detective, Wade, goes by the moniker Looking Glass, and he's got a silvery reflective mask to match that name. Two things. One, really quick, because we just talked about DJ Don Johnson. He's also going to be Nash Bridges in the new Nash Bridges movie. But let's get back to Looking Glass. This is Timothy Blake Nelson of Once... I want to say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because that's on my mind because that was recently just banned from China. Most recently, he was in the Netflix original film Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which is a weird Western anthology comedy, dark comedy musical made by the Coen brothers. Right. He's a Coen brothers native because the movie that I was thinking about was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, where he is part of the trio with Mr. Clooney and Jesus. Jesus. And we should say... He's a Tulsa, Oklahoma native. Do you think that's what got him the show? No, probably not. Well, it couldn't hurt. Yeah. I mean, it was probably his acting prowess and the way he looks in a neat, glowy mask. Wade gives Chief Judd Crawford the rundown of what's been going on. And he he, he tells him specifically, yeah, there was also a head of lettuce in the car. Right. And then Judd goes, were there any croutons? And... uh, Wade goes, not that I could ascertain. And it was the first time I laughed really hard at this show. And I was like, oh, thank Christ. It's funny. They ascertain that this must be the work of the cavalry, but they're puzzled behind the motive and the appearance of the lettuce. A convoy of black SUVs drives through a suburban neighborhood at night. Judd calls on the home of Roberta Sutton, the wife of the injured officer, Charlie Sutton. 
He informs Roberta about the shooting, tells her that he's, you know, he's recovering, he's in surgery, he thinks he's going to be fine. And then he kind of interrogates her a little bit, like, you know, did you tell anyone? Did he tell anyone that he's that he's secretly a police officer? And she's kind of offended by that implication. And and you think at first, like, oh, this this police chief's a dick. But then immediately after that, he kind of shows a softer side and shows that, yeah, he, do, he did care about this officer and he does care about his wife. Right. And he also indicates that the officer is alive. And this lets us know that being a police officer in this world is a complete secret. So you can't tell anybody if you're a police officer. You have to have, like, a alibi at all times. And before the scene cuts out, we see on TV footage of Dr. Manhattan on Mars building and then destroying uh, what looks like a gothic mansion. Hey, Superman's on Mars just making dust castles cut to an elementary school it's career day and angela abar is giving a presentation about her job as a baker she's describing you know how you keep your egg whites and your your egg yolks separate which seems like that maybe there's a kind of veiled racial metaphor there yeah veiled it goes into her exposition her background a little bit she grew up on a military base in vietnam before it became the 51st state got him moved to tulsa to become a police officer but quit after an event known as the white knight when vigilante terrorists called the seventh cavalry attacked police officers in their home uh, before police officers had to as you just mentioned go completely underground and hide their identity and so she quit that life and became a baker We see a smiley face at the beginning of this, a logo that will probably be showing up more than one time in the show. She was like, the doctors pulled apart my insides. And the kids were like, I'm trying to eat. Her daughter attacks a child who accuses her of opening her bakery with red fertations, which is the word reparations but with the last name redford in it because if you saw on a poster in this scene robert redford has been the president of america for the last 30 years yeah robert redford is apparently an extremely popular president who has come in and made sweeping progressive policy changes including apparently uh racial justice reparations which Uh, makes this little trailer trash white boy very angry. Right. And then Angela Abar's child runs over to that boy and straight tackles that mofo. And (laughs) she's like, no. And then they get in the car and she's like, why did you attack that boy? And she's like, because you wanted to. You wanted to punch that boy in the face. So, you know, I did. And she's like, well, no, not specifically. He's a child. And he's like, yeah, but he's a racist. She's like, well, no, He's not racist, but he's off to a good start. I believe she has the idea that, you know, children can't be racist. They're just being raised into racism. And he's he's getting there, but he has a chance. He can make it. A siren sounds and they pull over the car just as a downpour of tiny squids begin to rain from the sky. And it quickly subsides and Angela steps out to wipe the squids off of the windshield as they rapidly liquefy into squid goo. So the squid thing is a normal thing. That happens all the time. Everybody carries umbrellas everywhere just in case the squid thing happens. And earlier in this podcast, when I was like, oh my god, no fossil fuels, what did Andy Mantius 
do. <laughs> and you made the noise at me because I didn't read the comics and didn't know the background of that. I bring up once again, squids. What did Ozymandias do? So if you're only familiar with the Zack Snyder film, The Watchmen, you would know that he, in con- in conjunction with Dr. Manhattan, made some kind of energy device for limitless energy for the world, but then he retrofitted it into a doomsday device to attack the world and convince everyone that Dr. Manhattan was evil to prevent World War III. In the comic books, it's slightly different. He genetically engineers a psychic squid monster, which achieves pretty much the exact same end, but Dr. Manhattan isn't considered a villain in the comic book continuity, whereas I think in the the end of the movie, that's the direction they're going, is that everyone's going to hate Dr. Manhattan. Later, after cleaning up the squids off their front lawn, we meet Angela's family, her husband, Cal. It seems like her children are adopted. Uh, Did did you pick up on on that little ditty? Uh, And uh, then she has to go. She gets a beep of Little Bighorn. Earlier in this episode, uh, Judd and... Wade, Timothy Blake Nelson's character, have a conversation where they're like, should we call her in? And they were like, nah, that's fine. And they now finally call Angela in, although we don't know that yet, but we're about to find it out. And they send her a little bighorn, and she gets on out of there. In this universe, the internet has not been invented, and in their version of 2019, people are still using beepers and pagers to communicate. This world's so weird, dude. What did you do without the internet, dude? <laughs> internet's so good. As she heads, no, I'm not done with this bit. <laughs> As she heads to the bakery, we get a couple glimpses of passing information. A TV show called American Hero Story is about to debut. I guess that's in the same same vein as American Horror Story and American Crime Story. It's the same, uh, <laughs> the same production company, maybe. I assume Damon Lindelof and Ryan Murphy, the creator of American Horror Story, are friends. And one night they were drinking and Damon Lindelof lost a bet. And he's like, okay, fine, American Horror Story. The walls of the city are covered in murals of what seems to be departed black community leaders. Maybe that's related to the Tulsa massacre we saw earlier. And a newspaper headline seemingly announces the death of Adrian Veidt, Ozymandias from the comics. Yeah, whatever. He's an old guy. Probably won't matter at all. Then another old guy in a wheelchair, this one being African-American, outside of Milk and Hanoi, the quote-unquote bakery that Angela has, asks her if she thinks he can lift 200 pounds. And I thought to myself, uh, no, idiot, bye. Yeah, first he asks, well, this is your bakery. When's it going to open? In a couple months. Okay, do you think I can lift 200 pounds? Sure you can. Yeah, sure, buddy. Shut up. Once inside the bakery, Angela opens a secret door, dons an all-black costume, and heads out in a black sedan, rushes to a trailer park, and with no context, breaks down the door, beats the shit out of the sleeping man inside, uh, and then makes her way to a underground cop facility. I was watching this show with uh, two people, my girlfriend Sam and her friend Hoover, and I will say, as this was happening, that both of them know less about this than I do, and I know very, very little. I've only watched the movie. But as this was happening, Sam looked over and went, I don't think she's a baker. Inside, the police are watching a manifesto video sent to them by the 7th Cavalry. In it, several men wearing Rorschach masks stand silently as the leader warns of a coming race war, and kind of paraphrasing 
parts of Rorschach's diary, and it ends with them all going tick-tock, tick-tock, tick-tock in a menacing way. Very menacing. This was the trailer, and the 7th Cavalry is... I, I have two things, one to ask you and one to state. I don't know why I caveated this sentence. Here we go. One, <laughs> in The Leftovers, there is also a cult. They are the guilty remnant. They're very, very different. Their vibe is like, nothing matters. Let's all smoke cigarettes, not talk at all, and then we're all white. But they were a great cult with a great story. And I'm looking forward to seeing the end of this show when the 7th Cavalry and the Guilty Remnant, two of Damon Lindelof's cults that he has created in two separate shows, go up against each other for whatever was the best cult. And then number two, you, I think, have mentioned privately to me in the past that... Rorschach from the 1980s, whom we really haven't met in this show, if you have not ever seen anything having to do with Watchmen, you really don't know Rorschach other than he, his name is the first word of the mask that all of these people are wearing. But you've mentioned that like white supremacy wasn't exactly his focus, uh, but it's now been sort of, his words have been sort of refocused into, hey, Let's hate everyone other than white people and also be violent, violent bros. Yeah, Rorschach in the comics is like a far-right maniac, and he's got very extreme ideas politically. And I think, you know, in a lot of cases in reality, those things go hand-in-hand with extreme views on racism as well. And so I don't think it's a large leap that if you're someone who would devote themselves to Rorschach's right-wing thoughts on crime and society, if you would also then take a further step to connect them to some kind of bizarre race war ideology. God. We're so informative. Moving on. Chief Judd addresses a room full of coughed police officers. Coughed police officers? Yeah, they're coughed up, dude. They're so coughed. <laughs> Chief Judd addresses a auditorium full of masked police officers and announces that they're going to be conducting a raid on the known areas of 7th Cavalry hideouts as well as enacting a 24-hour period of authorization for weapons weapons to be used at officers discretion much to the objection and outrage of the character panda who is a dude in a panda mascot mask i love it i liked it so much his panda if i was to be a hero i would also have picked and i had like a lineup of masks from the you know the here's the the red scare here's the 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 timothy bike nelson's the the looking glass and then here a panda mask 100% of the time, I am the panda. Also, they were gone for three years, hibernating. I wonder why they were gone for three years. Right. Since the events of the White Knight, when the Tulsa PD officers were all massacred, the 7th Cavalry, they thought they had totally suppressed it, but I guess they had just gone dormant. And in the meantime, the police have become masked vigilantes themselves so that they cannot be targeted in their homes. Angela meets with Judd privately, and we can see that they're on extremely friendly terms. She was meant to go with him to the all-black production of Oklahoma, but she ditched him at the last minute, which he's very upset about. But uh, she makes up to him by telling him that she has brought what she believes to be a 7th Cavalry suspect locked in the trunk of her car. Right. They're both mad for different reasons. She's mad that she wasn't called immediately when a cop was shot. And he's mad that he had to be alone at Black Oklahoma. And then she's like, right, 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 right. There's a guy in my trunk, la, 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 la. They agree to put the suspect inside the pod. 
inside the pod, the looking glass, interrogates the suspect. He's denied his basic rights on suspicion of terrorism. While they're doing the interrogation, there are screens surrounding them, and they're showing scenes of Americana and then also right-wing imagery. And he asks him several of the same questions, trying to establish if he's a white supremacist, if he's a conspiracy theorist. He specifically asks him if he thinks interdimensional attacks are made up by the government. And though he's asked the same questions again and again, he doesn't confess to anything. Yeah, he's asked if he believes that the squids are a hoax made by the U.S. government. And we'll probably figure out later... It is a hoax, but the government has absolutely nothing to do with it. By the way, during that question, they showed the World Trade Center in the background, and which they're they're really just like putting all their cards on the table, be like, "Yeah, these are our thoughts. What do you think?" (laughs) Like they're they're just poking a bear and asking the bear to eat them. They'd be like, "Yeah, we don't even care, bear. We're pandas." So the Looking Glass comes out. He says his eyes are dilated the guy that he's interviewing on all of the Rorschachy questions. So, you know, he probably knows exactly what happened. Again, <laughs> one of the two people watching this with me, not my girlfriend, but Hoover said, this show is going to make the KKK so mad. And that's so true. Like th- they really are deciding to have every fight. They've decided that they're going to put their gloves on and fight everyone in the world. Outside, Angela confers with the looking glass, and looking glass says that based on his physical response to the interrogation, that he almost certainly is a terrorist. So they feign like they're going to release him, and then Angela beats the shit, takes him aside and just mercilessly beats the shit out of him. Maybe tortures him, maybe waterboards him. There's water coming out from under the door, mixed with blood. And when she comes out, she's like, yeah, cattle ranch, let's go. (laughs) I, uh... I, I got I got the so that's another like the, you know in this world the cops are willing to look the other way for just you know pure torture and a person beating up as long as the superhero is the one doing it it's an odd odd world that night the police officers stealthily converge on a farmhouse containing a number of suspects inside the seventh cavalry men are separating and organizing these little metallic discs. They're alerted by an alarm, and they begin to move like they're going to escape. The officers are then given the order to move in and take them out, and that's when the cavalrymen fire back with an enormous high-powered machine gun. It's a trap. Also, I thought those were quarters until later when they're described as you know lithium-ion batteries. And, and then, yeah, the Rorschachy dudes have a very large gun, and they shoot into all their cows. They kill all their cows, James. Yeah, those are their cows. Yeah, and then the cows are used to just, like, be in front of the quote-unquote heroes as they're trying to get closer to the house. They killed all their cows. A few cowherdmen attempt to escape in a small biplane while the police are being held back by this suppressive fire. When the machine gunner goes to reload, Angela rushes forward to attack him. She chases him into a nearby trailer Beats him into submission, but just before she can get cuffs on him or anything, he swallows a suicide pill, which is a callback to the comic. Did that guy look like he was the one in the car who shot up the cop? Yeah, he very well could have been. I did not pick up on that. All dusty white people look the same. Moving on. 
Two of the suspects do escape in the biplane, but the chief and another detective pursue them in what looks to be Night Owl's owl ship. And they are able to destroy the biplane using the flamethrower, but then they immediately crash the owl ship. Yeah, Night Owl's owl ship is called Archimedes, and it on it had a flamethrower. So... Yeah, it's the, it's an identical ship, and it's got the same weaponry, so maybe maybe it's the same thing or, or a copy, I don't know. Angela approaches the wreckage, obviously worried for the chief's safety, but him and the pilot both emerge battered but still alive. The <laughs> Judd w- comes out, Angela and Judd look at each other, and they start laughing. What is Judd's, Judd, some sort of comedian? Lol, lol, nudge. I'm nudging you, James. From across the earth, I'm nudging you. Nudge rejected. Aww. Cut to a palatial castle in a lush countryside. Adrian Veidt, played by Jeremy Irons. He's Scar. Classically trained uh, Shakespearean actor. Yes, Scar from The Lion King. Also from a ton of like nerdy fantasy niche genre projects. Just a great actor who I really like is Adrian Veidt in this. He's riding a horse. He's a horseman. And then he goes on inside from riding that horse, and he's naked on a typewriter getting his thighs massaged. Yeah, getting a deep tissue massage naked on a typewriter. That was weird. I was weirded out by that. Neat. Yeah, his his maid is massaging him while his butler, Mr. Phillips, arrives with like a, you know, like a, a smoking jacket for him to wear. His servants are very strange. It seems like he's plucked them out of the... 19th century, and they're kind of stilted and weirdos. I think they're robots. At an enormous dining table, he blows out a candle on a small yellow and purple, the colors of his outfit, birthday cake. (laughs) His butler, Mr. Phillips, goes to give, instead of a fork, he's like, here's a horseshoe, sir. Robots. (laughs) Vite takes this in stride. He's like, oh, no, 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 we don't use horseshoes for cake. I'll use a fork. Oh, a fork. Yeah, he was so embarrassed. He's like, oh, God, I do this all the time. I'm always pitching the horseshoe, and it's never the right time. I try to give him blunt objects to do things that sharp objects should be doing. I'm so stupid. Vite takes a single bite out of his cake, says it's good, (laughs) pushes it away, and then his butler, Mr. Phillips, gives him a present. This is the weirdest wrapped present ever. It's like wrapped in a sheepskin, but it's a golden pocket watch. He is very happy that he has gotten this watch. It's exquisite, Mr. Phillips. Mr. Phillips, the robot, is like, oh my god, thank Christ, the master likes the thing that I did. And he gets up to thank him, and then lets him know that they have a prize as well. And their prize is that he wrote a play. I was like, that's the worst gift all time. He wrote a play, and he intends for them to star in it, and the name of the play is The Watchmaker's Son, and of course, Dr. Manhattan was a watchmaker's son. Okay, so you can't say of course. People don't know that, like me, but now that I know that, <laughs> of course, Manhattan, watchmaker's son, knew it all along. At home, Angela and her family are sitting down to dinner with Judd and his wife. They joke about how Angela ditched him with a lame excuse so she didn't have to see Oklahoma. And then they ask Judd to reprise one of the songs that he sang when he was a student in a production of Oklahoma, which he does. And it's, you know, very jovial and fun. And you just think like, oh, this character's done. (laughs) Like he's gone. Yeah. Yeah. Judd was curly 
and he was great. He was singing. And you're right. This was an incredibly jovial moment. And then Sam went, this is probably going to be a lovely night and nothing is going to go wrong at all. Like that's the, the ominous feeling was, was permeated throughout the entire scene. I was also in a production of Oklahoma at camp one summer. Stop. And, uh, Everything stops. We spend the next 10 minutes talking about this. Who did you play no, in I was, Oklahoma? I, I was in the chorus. I didn't have a part. You but son a of a bitch. Play. I don't like it. I mean, I don't like these kind of low concept, just like, you know, like we, we, in previous episode, and the, we recapped Wally. You know, Hello, Dolly is a pretty lame musical. Oklahoma, also really lame. Just musicals from that period. Not really about anything. Not only is Watchmen taking on insane topics that they're just, they're putting on their gloves. The Watchmen podcast with Ryan and James are also putting on their gloves. But instead of fighting racism and the state of the earth, we're fighting old, weird musicals. Fun. That's weird. After dinner, Angela tells Judd that the cavalry have been hoarding the synthetic lithium left over from Dr. Manhattan. And Judd says it's to build a cancer bomb, whatever that means. A cancer bomb? That's a lot. Maybe related to like how Dr. Manhattan was spreading cancer. So maybe the stuff that he made also causes cancer. I'm not sure. Maybe that's just what people believe because I don't think Dr. Manhattan did actually give people cancer. That was also an Adrian Veidt conspiracy. Yeah, a conspiracy and everything's fine now because Superman is on Mars. At Judd's home, we see what looks to be the intro to American Horror Story play on TV while Judd on the phone is assuring the governor that the police have this 7th Cavalry situation under control. Judd gets paged that Charlie Sutton has woke up in the hospital and decides he's going to immediately go to see him. His wife asks him not to go alone and not to drive because she's pretty sure he's on coke. And he's like, oh, don't worry about it. I'll go with some of the boys. Yeah, that's a good point. We did skip over the fact that while Judd was singing his song from Oklahoma, he had totally snorted cocaine. Cocaine, yeah. The white horse. On the ride, we hear some right-wing radio talk show host praising Senator Keene, who is the senator who came up with the Keene Act, which banned masked superheroes in the comic book. Again, more callbacks. He's condemning President Redford for enacting sweeping progressive reforms. He's expanded environmental protections and enacted reparations, which, you know, I'm sure the average Oklahoma citizen does not appreciate. So as Judd was leaving his house, it zooms in on a picture of what I assume was either him and a child or him as a child with uh, with someone else. And the zoom was ominous, although it could have been ominous because the next thing that was going to happen is ominous, but it seemed slightly important. At home, Angela and her husband are interrupted mid-coitus by a phone call. Mid, mid, they really, honestly, they didn't even stop. They were like, no, nah, no, nah, we're going to, we're going to ride this one out. But, you know, voicemail hasn't been invented yet. Right, it so. just keeps ringing. It's so weird. Internet, dude. <laughs> she was just about to get there, too. He was blowing out the back walls, but the phone's <laughs> going off the hook. The term blowing out the back walls is just the best. The anonymous caller names her and names her father and directs her that she needs to see something at the old oak tree on Birch Street, and since he knows who she is, don't bother wearing a mask. Yeah, very keen act of him. Also, I was like, that sounds like the guy in the wheelchair. 
and it totes was eventually. So, yeah, uh, when she arrives, she doesn't have a mask on. Someone's putting a light in her face, and she's, like, not psyched about it. The light goes off, and then, lo and behold, I was correct as before a second ago when I was like, that sounds like wheelchair black man. And you know what it turned out to be? Wheelchair black man. Also, he was he was holding the note that the little boy at the beginning was holding that said, watch over this boy. So, he's that boy. Right, he's OB from the beginning during the Tulsa massacre, and she, you know, looks above him, and Judd has been lynched and is hanging from the tree. His badge is on the ground, and a single drop of blood coming from his neck wound lands on the badge, just like, you know, the callback to the first chapter of the comic book when that happened to the comedian's badge. And I will tell you, I was so mad when this happened. I was like, you have Don Johnson. You have Donnie Johnson, and you're going to kill him off episode one. But I have to believe there's a flashback element of this show. You don't get Donnie John and kill him off ep one, dude. And the song uh, Judd is Dead from Oklahoma is playing, which, you know, should have been a pretty big uh, signal that he was going to die if you're familiar with the play Oklahoma, which uh, unfortunately I am. That was a literal and metaphorical dead giveaway. So I thought this was a terrific episode. I'm really excited to see where this goes. I'm glad that this is different from Westworld in that it seems to be just kind of a tight, linear storytelling and they're not trying to mindfuck us that many ways. I'm excited to see what's going to happen, not find out what's going on. Yeah, and there, there's things that are going to happen, but there's also going to be a flashback element of this show. Like, we are going to go back in time, and it's going to be nonlinear in some way. Also... There are, I don't know, 10, 15 robots in Westworld, and thank God there are only two in this show. And we didn't talk much about Regina King, but she's excellent in this. I'm mostly familiar with her voice work from the show Boondocks, which I'm a big fan of, but she's so good in this. Uh, I think you said she's also a star in The Leftovers? Right, yeah. She was in The Leftovers, which is where Damon Lindelof knew her from. She had a... You know, a secondary-ish role. To, not really. I mean, she was like second-tier cast in The Leftovers in the second season of it. But I think she was just so good in that show that Damon Lindelof was like, I'm going to put you in everything forever. Yeah, but she's she's really good, I think, as the star in Watchmen. And maybe there are going to be flashbacks and stuff. But I'm more interested to see what's going on with the new characters that they've established. I think probably, like, most of the characters from the 1985 storyline are gotta be dead because they were all over the hill already adrian veitz looking pretty spry but he's probably messed with his dna or something and then we see in the next time on watchmen Lori blake is in the fbi she comes to try to figure out who killed judd and correct me if i'm wrong but Lori blake is silk specter's daughter yeah she's silk specter number two Explain who Silk Spectre is to the people who have no idea, like me. <laughs> Silk Spectre was one of the original members of the first superhero team, the Minutemen, and her daughter was groomed to take over the mantle in the second superhero team, the Crime Busters, and she's ex-girlfriend to Dr. Manhattan and daughter, illegitimate daughter of Edward Blake, the comedian, but she's, I guess she's taken on his last name. It's neat. The guy who plays Red Scare is the bad guy from Limitless, who is like the best part of Limitless, and now he's Red Scare, and I'm excited. Interesting. It is slightly interesting. Yeah, the episode one, not not 
too much to say about like uh, because it, you know the, they, the big cliffhanger obviously is like what happened to Judd and in the preview Obi is saying he killed Judd but like almost certainly that's not the case I think we're gonna find out it's the seventh cavalry. Or, you know, maybe there's some conspiracy to make it look like it was them and it wasn't really them. And that's why Lori's here. Who knows? I mean, to be fair, OB said, do you think I can lift 200 pounds? And then he claims in the next on that he was the one who did it. So sounds like it was the guy in the wheelchair who is just like, you know, deaf faking. Also, the moment that this show sold itself to me was when Adrian Vite was getting that cake from the two definitely robots and they were like we used the honeycomb that you gave us and then he took a bite out of it it definitely wasn't good and he looked at them and said it's the bee's knees yeah (laughs) well he grew up uh in a different time period so yeah he grew up in a different time period and he's just like holding the biggest secret known to man so I want to talk a little bit about this great interview that Damon Lindelof did with Vulture magazine. It's entitled, Like It or Not, Damon Lindelof Made His Own Watchmen. And he's pretty sure Alan Moore put a hex on him for doing it. Read it to me, baby. So uh, the first question, and he's talking about the, the rights to Watchmen, the book, were supposed to revert to Alan Moore and David Gibbons. But DC Comics didn't do that, and Moore has historically been furious about it, as have readers who advocate for creator rights. What does it feel like to make a show that a lot of people are going to oppose on principle, independent of the quality of the material? Is that something you think about? Lindelof goes on to say, That's something I think about a lot. What are the ethical ramifications of this even existing at all when I completely and totally side with the creator? Acknowledge that the creator has been exploited by a corporation, and now that very same corporation is basically compensating me to continue this thing. So, yes. It feels like he's in the place where he's like, I get it. But also, I want to. I want to do it. I want to do it so bad. I totes get it, man. Alan, you have been screwed. But you made such a neat thing, and now I want to mold your neat thing into my neat thing. People who don't know the original creator of the Watchmen, the guy who wrote the Watchmen comic book, Alan Moore, sold the rights to it when he needed the money, and now he was supposed to get them back eventually, and he never did, and he doesn't want sequels he doesn't want prequels he doesn't want spin-offs because he wants you know just the solitary art to stand on its own but he has no control over that is there any uh, ground to stand on where he maybe is thinking to himself hey when i sold this it wasn't worth a lot of money and now it is worth a lot of money and i want it back because i want all that money no i, I think he is actually got a lot of integrity and it, probably it comes from bad adaptations of his work in the past that he just doesn't want to see it anymore my cynicism doubts that integrity but right on lindelof goes on to say i ask is it even hypocrisy? Then I say as a fan, where would I come down on this if someone else was doing it? If I heard someone else was doing an HBO series called Watchmen that was not a strict adaptation of the book, I think I'd feel really angry about it, and then I'd watch it. Yeah. I wonder how many of the angry people who don't think it should exist will actually have the discipline not to watch it. First off, I don't think this, not being like on the side of Alan Moore, will be the biggest controversy of this show. I don't think it will be in the top 10 controversies of this show. I think sheathed guns, race wars, the KKK. I think those will probably be top three and uh, body cams four. Like at number 10, is Alan Moore mad? 
Yeah, I, I guess probably. Uh, so we should mention before we go to this next part, Alan Moore is a practitioner of magic, like the magic that's spelled M A G I C K. Like he believes in in. I, I mean, it's hard for me to describe. I don't know. Like he believes in magic, Druidic magic, or whatever. So he's like a he's like a pagan. He's a pagan. What is that? What do those things mean? Why is that the way it I is? I don't fully understand it myself. We should have a wizard on the show to explain it to us. <laughs> but the next question is, uh, uh, does it keep you up at night? Or James, have you made peace with it? James, yeah. hold on. You know wizards don't exist, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about someone who thinks they're a wizard. You totally think wizards exist. Let's move on. Lindelof answers, it wakes me up at night, but much less so now that the show's done. I'm about to say something very ridiculous, but in all sincerity, I am absolutely convinced that there was a magical curse placed on me by Alan Moore. (laughs) So not only does Alan Moore believe in wizards, Damon Lindelof believes in curses, and the Watchmen brings this hex upon their house. I'm actually feeling the psychological effects of a curse, and I'm okay with it. It is fair that he has placed a curse on me. (laughs) This one time, he can curse me. I'm cool with it. Just this I one took, time. I took his thing. He cursed me. Ipso facto, it's cool. He goes on to say, The basis for this, my twisted logic, was that I heard he had placed a curse on Zack Snyder after he made a Watchmen movie. This goddamn druid from England put a gosh dang curse on me. And Lindelof doesn't mention this, but, I mean, Zack Snyder, you know, obviously years after making Watchmen, did suffer a ton of personal tragedy and hasn't really had a hit movie (laughs) since then. Oh, you're going to bring up Zack Snyder's family deaths? Sick. Given the racial and gender politics of the show, I didn't want this to just be a conversation between two white men, so I reached out to a group of women of various ethnic backgrounds who wrote a series of essays called Women Watch the Watchmen to ask them what they'd want to ask you, David Lindelof. The first question comes from Chloe Mavel. Do you feel like this show is something that can help redeem Watchmen to literally anyone who's not part of the straight white male audience? Do you, as a fan of both the comics and the showrunner of the TV series, feel like there are comic books here need redeeming in the first place? Yeah, that's what I was just about to say. Like, is that the cultural zeitgeist that Watchmen is in need of redeem redemption? Well, I mean, well, well, Alan Moore, for all his credits, he's a druid. Writes writes stories about white men sure and if there are women and minorities they're like on the periphery or you know maybe they don't get the greatest story arcs qq is alan moore a white man yeah he's a a, a white druid wizard man right well they say right what you know so lindelof replies i don't think that the original watchman requires redemption on any level in any way shape or form i accept in its totality as a staggering work of art i also acknowledge that my relationship with watchman is that of a hetero straight white male who read it as a 13 year old which may be the perfect sweet spot. I am not in a place where I can be critical of Watchmen. I am in a place where I can acknowledge criticisms of Watchmen. I will say that a number of women who worked on Watchmen, wrote Watchmen, produced Watchmen, directed Watchmen, have found the treatment of women in the graphic novel to be less than ideal. Yes. Oh, no way. <laughs> I, am not, I am not in a place where I can be critical of Watchmen. I am in a place where HBO is paying me millions of dollars to make Watchmen. Do you get the difference? Do you see how that's different? I am not Alan Moore. I get to make a Watchmen that's like, here's how I feel about female characters. Here's how I feel about characters of color. Here's how I feel about Rorschach. I get to have those debates in the writer's room. Those other writers get to say, well, here's how I feel about it. 
Of course, in the writer's room, there's a wild range of whether or not Rorschach was a white supremacist. I said, that's not relevant. He's dead. What's interesting is that you can make a compelling argument that he was, and I can make a compelling argument that he wasn't. And that's that's what you and I were just talking about. We had that. We had that conversation. You can look at, you know, the legacy of this character who in the universe is dead, and different people can draw different conclusions about what his life meant, you know? Oh, man. I, I, can we go back to how Alan Moore was a magician wizard? That was that was that was that's, funnier. That's an easy conversation. Yeah, that was way easier than than gender and racial biases. So yeah, but I'm sure we will be having more of these conversations as the show goes on, and I'm looking forward to it. I'm one thing I'm happy about this show is that in an age where, and don't get me wrong, nobody loves Marvel more than me. I'm a huge Marvel like fucking basic bitch. I love it. They do not tackle big issues. Or, or when they do, they skirt around it in a very anodyne, gentle way that won't hurt anyone's delicate sensibilities. And that's not what Lindelof is doing with the Watchmen. As you said, he's putting everything on the table. <laughs> he's leaving everything on the field. Basically, all the things that are difficult topics that you could address in this medium are going to get addressed. Yeah, he swings out of bed every morning, gets up, stretches, puts on his red boxing gloves, and jumps into the fray. So, if you uh, like listening to the show, please let your friends know if they're fans of recaps or reviews, or they're a fan of The Watchmen, or they're a fan of HBO. Check out our large back catalog of HBO reviews and movie reviews. If you're just listening, it means a lot to us. If you want to go the extra mile, you could follow us on Twitter. At Westworld Ryan is Ryan's handle, and I'm at James Watches Men. Hilarious. Gold. Absolute gold. Hashtag HBO boys. Hashtag gold. If you want to send us something more long form, you can send us a message on SoundCloud. You can follow us on SoundCloud. That would be cool, too. If you want to help underwrite the production costs of the show, hosting audio is not free, you can find us on Patreon. Yeah, we're on Patreon at the Westworld Podcast. Also, go to iTunes, rate, subscribe, review, unrate, unsubscribe, unreview. Wait, don't unreview. Unsubscribe, resubscribe. Do it over and over again. Make us the biggest podcast in the world. Get it for my birthday. My birthday is soon. If you could just like make us the biggest podcast in the world, that'd be great for my birthday. Also, I assume that we are the biggest podcast in the world, so. And if after watching episode two, you have any thoughts, theories, or opinions about it, Tweet me or tweet Ryan, and we will read them and discuss what you've got to say on the show. Absolutely. I'd also like to thank our friend Chad, who made us an awesome logo. It looks really, really cool. Hashtag new profile pic for sure. And if you want to go over there and see that, it's on everything. It's on the SoundCloud. Also, by the way, we're on Spotify, too. You could be listening to us on Spotify right now. Hello, Spotify friends. What's good? So join us next week when we recap and review episode two of the HBO Watchmen series entitled Martial Feats of Comanche Horsemanship, also directed by Nicole Castle, and this time co-written by Damon Lindelof and Nick Cuse. Oh, look, another writer from The Leftovers. Okay, let's finish it out up. <laughs> I'm James. And I'm Ryan. And this is the Watchmen Podcast. Uh, So, yeah, you did it right that time. Good job. I did do it right, and I'm about to cut to you doing it wrong. No! (laughs) 
Welcome to the West... W- n- n- no. <laughs> <laughs> I have to decide now if I'm leaving that in. And I... I oh, it's you can tough. Put it, you can put it into the end. <laughs> okay. And then I did. Okay, guys. Thanks for being here. Bye.